Good morning. Good morning, Rabotai. Welcome to Breakfast in the Class Super Special Deluxe Edition um, because of the unbelievable opportunity for the naming of two baby girls on one day, which is a, an amazing achievement for any synagogue. I have to say, we're so glad that you brought your, uh, your children here for their naming. We know that you have your choice of other synagogues. Thank you for doing business with the Edmund J. Safra Synagogue of the Upper East Side. Yishtabach Shemo. Mazal Tov to baby... What, what's the... Are we calling it in the end? Where are my dads? We're called... Glory? How Amapur? And? And Naomi. Benayim, uh, inshallah, be'ezrat Hashem, we should be zokheh. To see them grow up to be strong, powerful, happy, satisfied, meaningfully led, purposeful life, lives lived, uh, Jewish women. We need more and more Jewish leaders in our community to be able to, uh, to guide uh, the young women of our community into tomorrow. And with, uh, with parents and grandparents, such as the ones that are in this room, we have no doubt that we will be reading about these young women for many, many years to come and all the amazing achievements that they're going to have. Breakfast in the class today is a very happy occasion. Uh, it celebrates a happy birthday for Andrea Schwartz. We wish her until 120 happy and healthy from Vanessa and Joseph Gotten family. And the Breakfast in the class also sponsored by Stephen Rapport, the Breakfast King, dedicated in celebration of the births of Uriel Moshe Raskin and Moshe Shochet. Mabruk to the Shochet family. Those are the two boys I mentioned. You guys can find out who gets which one uh, for, for your daughters. Ishtabach Shemo. Deluxe Breakfast in the Class is sponsored by Siga Shai and Richard Udenfriend and Louisa and Sirius uh, Shamsian. Sirus, Sam Shamsian, dedicated in honor of their children, Yonatan and Michelle, in celebration of the birth of their daughter. We're super proud of Michelle for making it out and coming to the celebration. It's not always easy to be there for the baby naming. It happens so quickly after the baby's born. Mabruk and Mazaltov, you should always have a, a healthy and refuashin amount quickly. Deluxe Breakfast in the class also sponsored by Jeffrey Omapur, dedicated in honor of his wife Rebecca, and in celebration of the birth of their granddaughter, of their daughter, excuse me, uh, Gloria Omapur, Ishtabach Shemo. You should only go from one celebration to the other in your life. Breakfast in the class is dedicated loving memory of Lillian Lee Rishti Alea Shalom. Lillian Nishmat Leabat Mazal, sponsored by her daughter Robin Beta. And as well, dedicated loving memory of Shalom Shirazi, Halava Shalom Lirushmat, Shalom Ben Khatun, and Sason Aleim Shalom for Shiloshim, dedicated by his son Yaakov Shirazi. And finally, the week of Kobru is dedicated in honor of Rochelle Sayed, sponsored by her children. <coughs> Rabotai, this week is a, a week of incredible historical significance, but not necessarily for the reasons that you would have thought. Okay? I don't know if we have anyone here. Do we have any French people here? Get out. No, joking. If we have any French people here, this week was a very powerful and difficult week in the history of the Jewish people. In the year 5000, so what year are we now? We're now in the year 5782. 782 years ago, in the year 5000, in this week's parasha, parashat Chukat, In this week's parasha, parashat Chukat, the Jewish people suffered a terrible tragedy. 
24 wagon loads of the Talmud of the Gemara were brought to the square in France, I believe it was in front of the Notre Dame Cathedral, and they burned hundreds or thousands of books to the, to the point where they were made into ash. Now, the precursor to that story is not as well known as the end of that story. And I want to give you the prologue. It was only four years prior to that moment when some of the greatest rabbis, the rabbi Rabbi Yechiel Miparis, who was the rabbi of the Maharami Rutenberg, he was the rabbi of the leader of all of, of, uh, of Ashkenaz, the leader, the rabbi who was in charge of all the rabbis from London, from Britain, the rabbi who was in charge of all the rabbis from that area. So you're talking about the rabbi who branched out and became responsible for scholarship at the time on the highest levels. His students were the Ba'alei Tosafot. His students, he himself wrote the Da'at Zekenim Ba'alei Tosafot. So tremendous rabbis that were called to the king and there was a man whose name should live on in infamy. His name was Nikolai. And unfortunately, he was a Jew who gave up his Judaism and became and converted to Christianity. He went to the king at the time in Paris and he told them the Jewish people have this Bible and in this, excuse me, there's Talmud and in the Talmud, there's many writings that are anti-Jesus, Yemach Shemo, against, uh, the, against our God. You cannot allow these books to survive Every one of these books needs to be burned in public. Now it's actually remarkable because if you take a Talmud today and you open up the Talmud, you'll notice that there are many places where chunks are missing from the Talmud. I don't know if you know this. And in fact, in the newest Gemarot, we have Gemarot, uh, editions of the Talmud, where pieces that had been taken out by the Christian censors and as well by Jewish censors who realized that if these pieces were still left into the Talmud, the books would be burned. So they, they, wrote, they wrote with a black ink and they covered it over. They edited, they redacted the Talmud to take out all the pieces which spoke about Jesus or about his mother or about his students. In fact, there's a Gemara in Sanhedrin, Tractate Sanhedrin, that talks about Jesus and all of his five students. Thaddeus and Peter and John and Matthew. It's literally, it's there in Aramaic. And it's in small letters because it was actually taken out. And then they found Gemarot from other regions. So if the Jews lived amongst the Arabs, they weren't Christian. They didn't care what the Talmud said about Yeshu. So those Talmuds, they survived. And those words were actually put back in to the newest editions of the Talmud in small letters. But many editions of the Talmud are still missing those pieces. They brought these rabbis together and they told them, defend your Talmud in a debate and if you lose, we're going to burn these all the Talmud. The rabbis came and it was on the fifth day, excuse me, the Monday of Parashat Balak, four years before, so the year 4,996. The rabbis debated the whole week in Parashat Balak. By the end of the week, they managed to win the debate against their Christian counterparts. 
and they ruled that the rabbis were victorious and the books didn't need to be burned. But it's very important that you should know. I don't know if we have students of history in the room today or listening online, but if you've ever been to Prague, in Prague there's a magnificent castle that sits on the Danube River. Very, very famous castle. Uh, you can see it from all the whole city of Prague. But what is so interesting about this castle that I think was owned by Marie Theresa uh, is that if you go into the castle complex, inside the castle you'll see a towering Gothic church built with you know spires and gargoyles. And it's wild because it's such a strange place to put the church. When you're walking in, you don't see it until you walk through the doors. And then all of a sudden you get through the walls of the castle and your head goes like this. Because the church is built maybe 30 feet from the wall. So it's terrible for optics. Why did they put the church right there? If you're a student of history, you'll understand that during most of the medieval period, the church was actually more powerful than the king's. So the kings were terrified of the power of the popes, of the cardinals. What you see happening in the expulsions, some kings were rabidly anti-Semitic, but there were many kings in the region that were scared to oppose the church. And the church had the power to take its church and plunk it down on top of your castle. They wanted to make sure that you knew who was in charge. So the church, at the behest of this Jew, this estranged Jew, Nikolai, eventually they brought 24 wagon loads and they burnt the Talmud. Now, you have to realize, historically, how many years ago did I say this was? Almost 800 years ago. If you know your history, you'll know that that predates the printing press. So these books of the Talmud were handwritten. So imagine, you ever see the size of the Talmud on the shelf? How many books that is? You know what it means to write that out by hand? It, it, it took years. Most people didn't have a copy of the Talmud in their home. The synagogue had one copy if they were lucky. Sometimes they had half of a Talmud. And the rabbis would have to go travel to another city to study the other books. So to burn that was a terrible tragedy for the Jewish people. It meant that laws were lost, customs, tradition, heritage. But my friends, what is remarkable to me is the placement of the burning of those Talmuds. In fact, you should just know, so that we're on the story, I should tell you the, the history. There was a leader who lived in the town of Kusi, which was nearby, and there was a very influential rabbi over there. And he was famously known as the Sar Mikusi, the Count of Kusi. He was a great rabbi, but he had a tremendously high position within the government because of his wisdom. And the king listened to him. So the king passed a law that two years after the debate, we're not going to burn the Talmud. Even though they're burning it in Paris, we're not going to burn it here. But in a short period of time, after he gave a lenient ruling on not burning the Talmud, he died from a very difficult and debilitating illness. So the priests came to the king of Paris and they told him, you know why this man died of such a horrible death? Because he didn't burn the Jewish books that speak ill of our Savior. If you don't want the same thing to happen to you, you'll make sure to go all out and do this act of terrible desecration and, and, uh, and, and destruction. And the king of Paris takes the bait and he burns the books in that spot. My friends, 
It is four years prior that in exactly the same space, the books of Harambam were burned by Rambam's compatriots, by other Jewish rabbis who didn't understand the Rambam's approach and they thought that he was trying to lead the Jewish people in a heretical path. They looked at his books, they didn't understand who he was, and they decided that his influence was dangerous, and so they burnt his books. In the same spot, four years later, the Talmud was burned, and the rabbis said that it was an, a punishment for burning the books of the Rambam, was the burning of the books uh, of, the, of the Talmud. And in fact, Today is the fifth day of the week of Parashat Chukat. And they instituted at the time that on the sixth day, the day of the burning, uh, throughout history, the Jewish people would keep that day as a fast day, which is really tomorrow, Friday. Um, and that day would, be, would live on in the memory of the Jewish people. Now, why am I sharing this with you? Number one, because of the significance of today and tomorrow in, in the Jewish calendar. But my friends, I want to share with you something else which I think is very powerful. You know, when you start a fire, you can't know what's going to be burned. You start burning the Rambam's books, you know what happens? That fire lives on in this place. Fighting machloket brings destruction that is unanticipated. You're trying to hurt someone else, ultimately, always, always, that boomerangs back and hurts you in a way that you didn't expect. In fact, the rabbi who first came out against Rambam, when he saw what happened and realized from the place that they did this, that they said, Nit'arev afar ba'afar, be'efer be'efer, that the ashes of one mixed with the ashes of the other. What they decided in that moment, my friends, this rabbi, he realized that he made a mistake and from then on, he would always teach the works of Harambam in his yeshiva. My friends, this idea to me is so powerful because we're sitting at the cusp of the three weeks where we learn all about the fact and the idea that destruction happens when people fight and when people are not able to witness, to see, to understand, to appreciate, to accept other people's ideas. There's a famous quote that goes, when they burn books, you should just know that they are going to burn people. And my friends, these ideas, that when you can't stand the idea of another, that person becomes such an anathema to you, such an enemy to you, that you allow that to burn in your heart, ultimately it always gets out of control. You know, we just read last week about the power of machloket. But in this week's parasha, we read instead of the power of purification. You know, it's so important to always realize that whilst... A person who is tameh met is the highest level of impurity. A person can become many, impure many ways in Judaism. But a person comes into contact with a dead body, they go to a funeral, they're under the same roof as someone who passes away. That's the highest level of impurity. Judaism teaches that even the most impure people has a way to be able to come back, has a way to be able to rehabilitate themselves. You know, there's a famous speaker, and his name is David Ross. And I watched a video from him and it really changed, it changed my perspective. And when you change your perspective, you change your life. So this man, he changed my life. He was born with a horribly disfigured face. And 
They made fun of him. People yelled at him. They screamed at him. They t- told him he was a freak. They told him he was being punished for previous sins. I mean, crazy things were said to him as a child. And what he realized was that he had to develop a sense of humor. He had to be funny. Because if he could get people to laugh, and he could get people to not look at him and be disgusted, or be upset, or be angry, or be scared, or be nervous, if he could get them to laugh, you know what would happen, he said? He said he might be given the, the gift of a second look. And the people who laughed at his joke, who, who he would make fun of the way that he looked, or the way that he presented, or he's like, he would say, do I have something on my face? Like, You're looking at me weird. Stuff like that. And, and, he, and so long as he got them to look past the wounds, past the scars, what would happen ultimately is that they would realize that the person they were looking at was not the entire story. You know, today, um, when actually I went to a, a wedding a little while ago, and the wedding was held in uh, the Guggenheim Museum. And we were walking through the museum during the wedding. You could actually walk around and see some of the stuff that was on display. And I was walking with someone, a woman uh, from the community and her husband. And I, I said, you know, I'm looking at this painting. It just, it looks like anyone, any kid could have done this. Anyone, you know, it looks like garbage. There's a bunch of material hanging from a thing. Uh, like, you know, it looks like some person was lazy the night, you know, remember the night before your science project? Remember that? You didn't have anything. You know, you, you grabbed a book, you put through something together, right? you came to school, you hoped no one would notice that you did it in three minutes. That's what it looked like. And the woman said to me something, it was so powerful. And this is a shout out to you, Eleanor. Eleanor said to me, Rabbi, you're falling in the trap. That's not how you look at art. And we have someone here who's an expert. You can't look at art and say, oh, this is what it is. You have to understand what is being portrayed. What is the message? What are they trying to communicate? And, and the fact that when someone breaks new ground in art and no one understands it because they're trying to look at it and they don't get what the artist is saying, how many artists became famous, became millionaires only after they died? They died un- underappreciated, uh, uh, misunderstood. She said to me, don't fall in the trap. My friends, every person is a piece of art. And if you look at the person and you think it's unimportant, it's not relevant, it's not worthwhile, you know, like they looked at Harambam, then maybe you're not looking deep enough. You're not understanding where he's coming from. Rambam wrote a book called More Nebuchim, which means guide to the perplexed, guide to the lost. And in it, he made what for at his time were very controversial statements. And the people thought Rambam was actually veering off a path of Judaism, when meanwhile he was actually addressing and opening up a conversation and a discussion with the ideas and the philosophies of his day. And because they didn't understand him, they didn't give him a chance, a second chance. My friends, Rabbeinu Yonah wrote Sha'are Teshuvah, an entire book on Teshuvah. You know why he wrote it? Because he felt like he misjudged Harambam, he chased after him. He was part of this pack of people. And in the end, he became a great friend and a great disciple and a proponent of Rambam. How often does that happen? 
When a person who you don't understand and you don't appreciate and you see something about them that seems ugly and makes you want to turn away, if you gave them the gift of a second look, what would you discover? There was a program a while ago that was run by an organization that does shiduchim. They do, they make matches. And the woman said to me, Rabbi, you don't know how many times a guy and a girl, they go out. Doesn't work for whatever reason. Maybe they were young and stupid. Maybe they each thought that they were going to have, you know, a checklist where every box was going to be ticked. But you know what? They're still single. And they're looking and looking and looking, but they won't give a person that they went out with a second chance. You said no. You walked away. But maybe it's time to say yes. Maybe it's time to give it a second look. How many times do people wind up married to someone that you know what, they knew for 50 years. They knew, not 50 years, they knew for a long time. <laughs> they were good friends until they, you know what, I'm actually, I'm doing a wedding this summer of a young man who, this girl was a friend of his, uh, uh, sorry, a, 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 a friend of his friend's sister. The whole time he looked at her, she was just this kid growing up and the, you know, and she was a kid because when they were kids, you know, four or five years when you're kids is a huge difference. You know, you're 10, she's six, she's a baby. But you're 24 and she's 20, that, that's not a bad, right? That's not a bad gap, right? But, but in your brain, she's still that kid. What if you took a second look? What if when you got angry at someone and you were justified? What if you took a second look? What if you looked again? We have two baby girls that were named this morning. And I want to say something which might be a little bit crazy. You know, we live in a world today where women are very differently perceived than they were only a short while ago. They have more value, they have more uh, opportunities, they have more freedoms, they have more respect. And, and it's a world in which, through many different struggles, women are contributing to the community in ways that they, they I don't know if they ever have, I don't know if they ever were allowed to, but be, be that as it may, uh, they're doing incredible things in the community, in the, in, in the world, uh, etc. And, and I think on some level, that's also a, perhaps an opportunity that was given to men to take a second look. But look at what that second look has yielded. I have a, two friends that are obsessed with special needs kids. And they each run incredible organizations. One, the Special Children's Center, one care, my dear friend Yaakov Shweki and Janine, and my dear friend Maya Safti and Victoria. They do incredible things. But to me, you know what's so special, it's so wonderful? Not when you have just a respite center, it's amazing. Not when you have your mainstream them in schools, amazing. What amazes me more than anything is when you walk into a bakery, into a store, into a, a department, and there's a man standing there who's clearly suffering from Down syndrome or some other special, uh, special needs problem, a developmental, and the man or the woman is leading a fully functional life. Because once upon a time, they locked him up. Once upon a time, he couldn't go to school. Once upon a time, he was, it was dictated from birth that he was a nobody. But now, someone's giving them that second look, that second chance. Look at what happens when we look again.
My friends, I will end with this. The greatest leader the Jewish people have ever had, his name is Moshe. And Moshe is chosen, the Pasuk says, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush. And Moses looks at the bush and he sees ki eneno ukal, that the bush is burning, but that it's not becoming consumed. So the fire is raging, but the leaves are not burning. And God says, and God saw that Moshe had turned to look, and he called to him, Moshe, Moshe, you're going to be the leader of the Jewish people. You know what I always loved about this? If you look at a bush that's burning, can you tell at first glance whether the fire is consuming the bush or not? Impossible. Maybe it just caught hold in the bush, and maybe the reason why the leaves are not burned is because the fire is fresh. In order for Moshe to realize that, what was required? A second look. What was required was a focus that doesn't just ADD look, look away and forget. He looks and then he looks again. Moshe says, for my children, I need someone who looks and looks again. You look at your kid, they have some challenges in school, don't write them off. You look at your kid, you know, they're having struggles getting married. Don't decide that your kid is picky. Maybe they actually know what they want. Maybe they're not just turning people down for silly reasons the way you're saying it. They're turning people down because they don't have that connection. And what should they do? Fake it? And get divorced three weeks later? What's the point? Look again. Ask. Engage in conversation. It is the most remarkable thing when something you think you understood surprises you. Let the world surprise you. Baruch Adonai Amen